0: Uh, Open up to Philippians chapter one, which you can find on page 980 of your blue pew Bibles. Just a moment, be picking up in verse 18. But before we hear from God's word, let us turn to Him in prayer. Father, we do ask for Your help this morning. Our hearts can often grow dull. Our minds can often get cloudy and distracted. Your word can sometimes seem repetitive, and we come to think that, yeah, we've heard this before. Lord, no matter how many times we have heard these words, we pray that you would make them new, that you would renew our spirits and help us to glorify you pray all of this in your name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 1, I'll be picking up in the second half of verse 18, where it starts a new paragraph and reading through verse 26. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again says the word of our lord what is it that you want most in this life what is Your driving passion, your supreme goal, your aim above all other aims. I think I've mentioned it before, but the book of Philippians was one of those books where early on as a believer, and specifically passages like this, that I think radically transformed the way I understood the Christian life, and and shaped my formation as a young believer in the faith. And one of the biggest lessons that I learned about the Christian faith is that it's not just something that you mentally affirm while then going about the rest of your life trying to simply avoid the big sins. No, the Christian faith is in all Encompassing way of looking at the world, of understanding who God is, understanding who we are in our relationship with God, and understanding what our purpose in this world is in light of that relationship. It affects everything, it touches every part of our lives, not just whether or not we set the alarm for Sunday morning and show up to church. I don't know if you've ever said a word or a phrase so many times that it begins to lose its meaning. Uh, Maybe as Presbyterians, we are in danger of doing this with Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It just sort of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? We've said it so many times, we maybe forget all that it means. Well, I think Philippians chapter 1, the section we're reading through, Paul is more or less affirming what we believe in the question in the shorter catechism. He's not affirming it for those that are just in vocational ministry like Paul or who are missionaries or church officers. He's not saying that this question is just for some idealistic college student that hasn't really experienced real life yet, the question about man's chief end, about our ultimate purpose in life, that question applies to every single person who has been made in the image of God, by God, and for God. It's for all of us. It's a question for kids doing schoolwork all day. It's a question for line workers in the factory, for the umpteen healthcare professionals we have in this church. It's a question for moms who are wiping noses and changing diapers all day, for those who are elderly and retired whose kids have moved out of the house. It is a question. What is your chief end that is meant to be asked of all of us? And here in this passage... We see Paul telling us that our chief end, indeed, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever in all of our living and in our dying. That is Paul's hope for his life. He wants to be faithful to no matter what God has called him to do. Faithful in his gospel witness, faithful in his dying, and faithful in his laboring in this life. We're going to take those three in order. How is Paul faithful in his gospel witness? Well, if you were here the last time I preached on this text, you remember that the previous passage ends with Paul rejoicing, right? He has these rival preachers. He's locked up in prison The people in Philippi that he's writing to, these are dear friends. These are ministry partners. They're worried. Well, Paul, you're in prison. Is the gospel going to go forward, or is it going to be hindered? And so Paul says, Nope. I'm in prison. Gospel is going to all of the guard and Caesar's house is becoming. uh, They're they're coming to faith. Said all of the brothers, they're emboldened to now preach the gospel. And so Paul says, In all of this, the gospel is going forth, even though I'm in prison. So in that I rejoice. The gospel hasn't suffered. It's actually been advanced. So Paul rejoices. And now, in this passage, in the second half of verse 18, Paul shifts his focus. He begins to look ahead to the future and say, Then in the future, I will still rejoice. He, he isn't just repeating himself. For emphasis, though he's doing that, but he, he's saying, I'm rejoicing now, and 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 down the road into the future I will still rejoice because Paul is confident that he will remain faithful in the task that God has given him. He's presumably in prison awaiting a trial where he is gonna to have to give a defense for the gospel that he is proclaiming. He's gonna to have to decide. How is he going to answer his opponents? How is he going to face their accusations? Is he going to wither? Is is he going to hedge the truth? Will will he smooth over some of the the rough spots of his message? Is he going to shrink back in order to preserve his own life? Or when that day comes, and he's facing the authorities who have his very life in the palm of their hands. Will he be more concerned with the glory of God and the salvation of his hearers? And we all face this test on a regular basis. Maybe not life and death like Paul, but we face the same test. We, we face The same temptations. When the opportunity comes, what will we do with the gospel? A conversation pops up, and in some way, your faith is beginning to be challenged. Maybe not even maliciously, but people want to know, what is it that you believe? And in that conversation, you have an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Christ. Now, being faithful in those opportunities, being faithful witnesses to the gospel, belief starts, as Peter says, by being ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And sure, some of that can entail intellectual readiness, but I don't think that's exactly what Peter has in mind, where he says, you have to have read all of the best apologetic books and practice all of these arguments before you can give a defense for your faith. What Peter means is that you need to be emotionally, spiritually, mentally ready, resolved to tell the truth. You're ready to answer the question that is before you. Uh, if none of you have coached Little League, you have never lived. I, I highly suggest you try. It, it is Quite an experience, and I've been doing this now for several years with my eldest son. And there are two things that I repeat most often when coaching Little League on a minute by minute basis. The first is, Yes, I know you want to pitch today, no, you're not pitching. Please stop asking me if you can pitch. That's number one. The second thing that I say is, Defense. Be ready, because if you watch literally, you've got outfielders who are standing in the outfield picking dandelions, your shortstop has his glove off half the time, your your second baseman is just practicing his swing, your third baseman is just practicing his pitching, because he thinks he's going to pitch, and he's not, and every second of the game, I am constantly reminding them, you guys need to be ready, but they're not, why? Because they don't actually think the ball is going to be hit their way so they think they can do whatever they want so then when the ball is actually hit to them which it is seems like the batters can always find holes in the defense your defense doesn't make the play because they're not ready they got to go get their glove first before they can get to the ball readiness is preparation for success Now, now i don't say this in order to Drop a guilt trip on all of us and say that anytime you haven't taken full advantage of a gospel opportunity, that you're just some unfaithful wretch and you've damned your coworker for eternity. No, we don't want to be that hard on ourselves, but it is worth asking ourselves and evaluating our own hearts, asking if our witness would be more fruitful if we were more ready, Are we praying for specific people to come to faith? When you get to work in the morning, before you walk in, are you praying, Lord, would you use me as salt and light today? Are you walking into those conversations with confidence that the Lord of the universe, who has been given all authority, is actually with you in those conversations, that the the Spirit is empowering you, teaching you what to say? Are you proactively initiating those conversations, asking thoughtful questions? Peter reminds us, and Paul sets an example to us, that we ought to be ready that we may prove to be faithful. Here, Paul lists two reasons why he has confidence for his hope and his future faithfulness. Paul's comment, he, he knows that this is going to turn out well. Why? It says, one, because of the prayers of the Philippians They're in his corner. And the second, it will be the supply of the Holy Spirit. We see that these two hopes that Paul has, that they are intricately connected. They're so closely related to one another that, that they're all he needs for such a confidence. And and it makes sense, doesn't it? Once you think about what's taking place in Paul's heart as he's preparing to make this defense, why he would be confident with just these two things. Because Paul knows, well, you Philippians, you're praying for me. He knows that if you're praying, that God will hear those prayers. He will answer. He will be faithful. He will supply me with His Spirit. That will be the answer to the prayers. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit in this situation? It is to see Paul through the ordeal in order to make Christ known. The role of the Spirit is to magnify Christ throughout the world. And so if the Philippians are praying, if God is hearing, God is giving the Spirit, the Spirit is doing its job to magnify Christ Paul knows I've got what I need to be bold. I have what I need to be courageous, to be unashamed of the gospel. So Christian, I I tell you, if you want to be ready to share your faith, if you want to be successful, if you want to be faithful, to make bold proclamations, you want to see God working through you, you want to see fruit, then do not minimize the importance of praying for the Spirit to work in you and in the hearts of your hearers. And don't minimize the opportunities that you have to pray with and for one another. That would be one of the main themes of our prayer service tonight. Keeping with this text is praying for those that we love. To hear the gospel and to respond in faith. And that's if you've been to the prayer service any amount of time, you know that that's one of the main themes that we pray for most regularly because we believe it's one of the most important things to be praying for most regularly. So be an easy application of this text to trust that God works through prayer meetings. So maybe consider coming to prayer meetings, trusting that God will work through the prayers of his people. Now, Paul expresses his confidence here in Philippians 1, it appears that he can't quite make up his mind about what he's actually hoping for. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 18, he says he knows that this will work out for his Deliverance. And in verse 20, he says that his hope is that he won't be unashamed, but he'll have courage, presumably, to speak boldly to his hearers. But he also says that he'll, he'll be delivered, but he doesn't know whether he will actually live or die. So so what, what's happening here? Paul, are you confused? Are you unsure? Well, no, Paul's not confused. He's not being wishy-washy or overly optimistic, thinking, yeah, I'll probably get out, but I'm not actually sure. So so why does Paul seem to say he, he's confident that he'll be delivered, but he doesn't know if he's going to live or die? Well, first, we have to actually understand what Paul means by deliverance. This phrase that he uses to describe his hope. Is the same phrase that's actually used in job chapter thirteen verse sixteen job being accused by his presumed comforters, uh saying, you know all of the suffering job must be because you've got some secret sin in your life, and so job says and see petitions God, this will be my salvation that's the same phrase Paul uses that the godless shall not come before God. So so Job's making the case, I'm not harboring some secret sin. I've continued to walk uprightly through all of this. And so Job is saying, I'm trusting that I come and make an appeal before God. That's not something that the ungodly can do. And so as I make my appeal, God will hear me and I will be vindicated. So too, Paul is trusting that he's going to remain faithful, he's going to remain clear, and either the authorities will acknowledge his innocence and acquit him and let him go, or he'll be put to death. And he'll stand before the holy, wise, supreme authority who sees all and judges rightly, and then he will be rightly vindicated before the highest court in the land. Either way, Paul wins. Either way, he's delivered. Either way, he's vindicated. So what Paul is doing is giving us an eternal, broader, spiritual perspective on his present situation. The same way he gave perspective in the previous paragraph, saying, yeah, I'm in prison the gospel is going everywhere— He's saying, "Yeah, I'm in prison. I'm facing a judge. Either way, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to be delivered." And then after making this declaration of deliverance, he then brings us through his thought process, how to think about these two outcomes of life and death. And Paul's hope is to either glorify God by faithfully facing death or to glorify God by faithfully laboring in life. So then how does the Christian glorify God in death? you are not really doing anything. What do we do in dying that brings glory to the Father? We glorify God in death by not treating death as an enemy to be avoided, but a finish line to be reached. So often we treat our life like this is where our greatest hopes and our greatest joys will be found. So we're going to do everything we can to make the best life now. We're going to do everything we can to get a good job, to get a good salary, to make as much money, to retire as early as possible so we'll be set up to enjoy the remaining years that we have to their fullest, Extent. And if death comes prematurely at any point in that process, we lament that we're not going to get to do all of the things we hoped we'd get to do. We think that when death comes, it's taking everything from us. That is not how the Christian is meant to think about death. Paul doesn't say Death takes everything from him. Paul says that death is gain. He's receiving because it gives him the very thing that he wants the most. That is Jesus himself. Do you believe that death is truly a gain, a net positive for you? that's a radical statement that is not that's not the way that we as americans or as humans tend to think about death that yeah that when that comes it's going to be good it's going to be what i've always wanted that do you believe that if you were to die today that you would be happier than if you were to remain on earth is being with Jesus the thing that you want the most more than anything else in life? Or have you maybe gotten distracted? Has your first love begun to fade? Does it feel like the older you've gotten and you've got more to lose now? And so Maybe the gain isn't as great as you once thought it was. And I I feel that way. I've got a great life. A wife, kids, house, good job, good friends. Yeah, death would take a lot. But there is good of all those things are. There is nothing in this life that comes even close to the joy that you will have Worshiping your Savior face to face. Not even close. Not your job, not your car, not your dream house, your dream vacation, not your favorite team winning everything, not your kids, not your spouse. As, as good as all of those gifts are. Not minimizing those. But even a lifetime of everything you could ever want None of that can match the pleasure of seeing Jesus face to face. On your best days, the the, the high points, the, the mountain peaks of your happiness in life, those are just a shadow. It's just the appetizer of the main course that awaits in heaven. And we so easily forget that. And we begin clinging to this world a little too tightly. Death doesn't gain. It's taking what is good from us. We can start to think of heaven as sort of a mid-tier timeshare. Think, yeah, yeah we should probably go there this year. It'd be, be nice, but uh, maybe it's not worth it. No, we'll go next year think, yeah, heaven's a little bit like that. Yeah, sure, it'll be good. But I've got a lot going for me now. So maybe heaven can wait. Oh, let us not think that seeing our Lord should wait. That that is a second-class joy. That is the source of our greatest joy. Death truly is gain. There was a, a popular show uh, ended a few years ago called The Good Place. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's, it's fine. It tries to explore uh, some some philosophical questions about morality, what is right and wrong, explore the nature of the afterlife and what it would be like to end up either in the good place or the bad place. It It, it is an interesting sort of cultural barometer, uh, but there are also some very sad aspects of the show one of the saddest was the way it concludes is again they've been exploring what would life be like to end up in they call the good place and the show presents heaven as this world of infinite possibilities where if you could dream up any scenario well then you could experience it so if you want to feel what it's like to fly and and fly through a cloud of fluffy kittens on your way to an infinite ice cream sundae, well, then you go into this little room and you can do that. If you want to simulate throwing the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, well, you come over here and you get to do that. If you want to have more quality time with loved ones that you lost when you died, well, then you get to do that. Anything you can dream up, it's it's yours. So infinite possibilities for as long as you want them. But then, one by one, all of the characters in this show begin to get bored. They're tired of all of the things they can come up with and throwing the touchdown for the millionth time. And so, once they get bored with all these self-indulgences, they can choose to walk through a door and their consciousness is ended and their bodies just evaporate into the universe. They, they cease to exist. That, that's their answer to the afterlife, that once you get bored, you can just cease to exist. And what makes this picture so sad and unfulfilling is that heaven just becomes about you. You're the center of reality. You're the one who creates your joy. You're the reason that you're there. It's just to fulfill all of your own indulgences. And yes, if that's what heaven is like, just you coming up with ways to make you happy, yeah, you're going to get bored of yourself no matter what laws of physics you can break. Even the most interesting man in the world will get tired of himself. Because we're all just... Humans were finite. But you're not the point of heaven. Nobody, no human is the point of heaven. The point of heaven is Christ. That you get to be with your Savior. You get to talk with him and eat with him to learn from him. He gets to teach us. You're going to get the best sermons you've ever had from the son of God, teaching you all about the character and the glory of the father. You're going to get to worship him face to face clearly because God is infinite because he is Independent from all of creation because he is the source of joy and source of pleasure. Guess what? You're gonna never get bored because you will never be able to fully exhaust all of the glory that is the Father in heaven. Even in the millionth year, you will be just as satisfied as the first minute that you arrived. That is the point of heaven. It is staring at Jesus and worshiping the one who is all glorious, not worshiping yourself. See, Paul did not count death as gain just because he gets to escape this troubled life and have a life of comfort. He counted it gain because he got to worship his Savior. He got to go and be with the source of abundant life. So let us not lose sight of all of these unfathomable blessings that await us in glory, where death really will be our gain. We are to glorify God by looking ahead to that day, looking forward to that day, to embracing it gladly and not despising the reward that awaits us. Now. I have intentionally not made any qualifying statements about death being gained. Because here Paul is not making any qualifying statements, is he? He's making a clear throated proclamation of the glory of Christ. So if Paul's not going to qualify that death is gained, I'm not going to qualify it either. But, Just because we don't dread death, because we should look forward to it, doesn't mean that we become some cult that's going to serve Kool-Aid at the next fellowship meal. Or it doesn't mean that we become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Even though our chief desire is to go and be with Christ, we know that our lives here on earth have a God-given purpose. While we live, we are to glorify God by faithfully laboring in His kingdom for the good of others. See, as Paul introduces this idea, he he presents a struggle that he has. He desires to be with Christ, but there's this tension in him, in departing, because he knows that while he's still here, he can be of service to those that he loves. He says that to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So even though what he wants most is to be with Christ, he says, it's "Good for me to remain here." But you'll notice that again, Paul's purpose in this life—it's not his own consumption, it's not his own enjoyment, it's not fulfilling his own desires. Paul's aim in life is. The Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. He's willing to set aside his own desires for heaven so that he can then serve his brothers and sisters, that that he can help grow them up into maturity. He's willing to delay his greatest treasure for the sake of the church. And this willingness to labor for the joy and faith of others at his own expense, that that willingness to humble himself, that parallels the same self-emptying and the same humility that Paul describes in Christ in chapter 2. This is what Paul means when he says, to live is Christ. You live serving others that you may model Christ's service to the world. That you, yeah, you want to go and be with Jesus, but but you know that while you're here on earth, you can faithfully serve like Jesus as well. So brothers and sisters, again, let me ask, is this our aim in life? Do we exist on this earth and in this church to serve our own ends, to make much of ourselves, to fulfill our own desires? Or is our chief end the same fruitful labor for the joy and the faith of others? Do we desire to look like our Savior, to look like our Lord, to look like our Master? What, what did His life look like? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of God, Paul says, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man, by being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So as long as you are alive, your life is meant to look like that of a servant. No servant is greater than his master. And our master became a servant to all. So our lives are meant to be marked by lives of service in the kingdom. That is Paul's end. That ought to be our end too. See, Paul has these two outcomes before him. Living like Christ Serving the church, contending for their joy in the faith. Or the other option is gaining through death, going to be with Christ. Verse 22 says, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. Now, Paul is not saying that he ultimately gets to decide what Happens to him, and then once he makes up his mind, he's going to start doing what it takes to reach that end. Paul's not in control of when he takes his final breath, none of us are in control of when we take our final breath. What Paul is doing is asking a rhetorical question, and he's having an open debate with himself for all of his readers to see. And at the beginning of this rhetorical debate, he's not sure which outcome he would prefer. He says, "Jesus is great, that I want the most. But my Lord that I want the most, has a purpose for me here in this life as well. And I want to lovingly carry out that purpose for your sake. And so Paul concludes in this debate that for the sake of the church, He wants to remain. He wants to carry out his service to them faithfully. Just to glorify God, faithfully laboring for the sake of his dear friends. Now, none of us knows our hour either. Could be today. Could be another 40, 50, 60 years for some of us. Just as God was perfectly sovereign over every second of Paul's life, he has ordained every second of ours. Some of us are going to lead long, full, joyful lives. Some of our days will be shorter than we expected. That's not for us to know. What we do know is, is how we we're supposed to fill those days. That for as long as we live, we are to delight in Christ, to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to serve in his kingdom. That is what we're to do while we live. And we are to look forward to the day when he calls us home, to worship in his presence, to be with him. Glorify God, enjoy him forever, in all of your living and in your dying. Let us pray. Father, this is often hard. You are a giver of good gifts, and sometimes we mistake those gifts for the giver. And we think that what we have in this life is ultimate. What we have in this life is what's best. Help us to remember that Christ is best. That that is our hope. And that that hope would shape how we hold on to the things in this life. That we view all of them rightly in light of your son. Oh, we pray for your spirit to work in us. Amen.